welcome everybody. It's horse hide to cow hide, America's pastime. Featuring your host, Ricky Litwinkowicz. Welcome to Horse Hide to Cow Hide, America's Pastime. I'm your host, Ricky Litwinkowicz. I would love to hope and pray that everybody had a safe and enjoyable 4th of July. This week's episode is a jam-packed episode, eight days worth of baseball memories. On this week's show, we have Alex the Bear Man from Texas, Mark Braverman, the lifelong baseball fan, Enzo Pontrelli, baseball historian. Let's get out of that on-deck circle and let's get to those historical baseball moments in history. June 27, 1949. Joe DiMaggio returns to the lineup after missing the first 69 games of the season due to an ailing heel which required operation for bone spurs. The Yankee Clipper will go 5 for 11, a 455 batting average, connecting for four home runs and driving nine runs in the team's three-game sweep against the Red Sox at Fenway Park. Ladies and gentlemen, I am the Bear of Texas, and now I want to talk a little bit about Joe DiMaggio. The year is 1949, quite a memorable year for DiMaggio. He did not start out the season during opening day. He was injured, an ailing heel injury that really affected his playing ability. In baseball, a heel injury is quite devastating because like I just said, it affects the playing abilities. Joe DiMaggio is more than a hero in New York, especially for the organization of the Yankees. And obviously, it's hard. it was hard to accept that he would not be ready for opening day, because for him to be bedridden and try to pressure, apply some pressure to, the he, to his heel, massive pain would strike. And this continued for months. The Yankees fortunately were able to hold on to first place Thanks to, as I'm reading from, it was solid pitching. And the Yankees had, had some struggles on offense because their best hitter was not present. Based on what I'm reading here, and this is you know, SB Nation and Stripe Alley, a little bit about the Yankees' history. The author's name, Ryan Chichester. And as he explains here, he says that DiMaggio described the pain as ice picks stabbing his foot with each step. That just shows how painful it is. I mean, a baseball player has to be healthy. That's how baseball players succeed. I mean, baseball is just one of those sports where, you know, a foot injury, whatnot, the way you move when you swing the bat, if you're hurt, you're not right, your playing ability is just affected. DiMaggio did work out at Yankee Steam when he was empty. He did play an exhibition game Soon the pain was gone, however, obviously, DiMaggio was rusty. Miraculously, DiMaggio got back to his form. 
and there was that series against the Boston Red Sox. He would come back, and in that series, he would go 5 for 11, 4 home runs, 9 runs, as the Yankees would sweep the Red Sox at Fenway Park. So in that case, it was the good way to have their hero back. And that year, what's so important is that the Yankees would win the World Series in 1949, which was the first of the record five straight when they won it in 1949, 1950, 51, 52, and 53. But it wasn't just that injury that year. DiMaggio would actually be hospitalized due to a fever, and that fever masked body temperature of a 102 degrees and when he was gone the Red Sox you know that year the Red Sox and Yankees were battling to, f to finish in first place and the Red Sox would not go away it would come down to the final two games and DiMaggio even though during, due to his illness he had lost a reported 18 pounds he elected to play that's Joe DiMaggio folks despite the pressure he knows how important he is to the team he comes on the t he comes on when he's v when he's needed the most. The Yankees would hold on and they would win the pennant that year, and again, they would win the World Series. June twenty seventh, nineteen fifty nine. With players voting, Henry Aaron gets a unanimous vote for the All Star Game, making him the first player so selected. June twenty seventh, nineteen ninety nine. The Mariners beat the Rangers 5-2 in the 1,765th game and last Major League game to be played at the Kingdom. The final contest, attended by in front of 56,530 fans at the Accident on the Occidental, features a three-run home run in the bottom of the first inning by Ken Griffey Jr., who also makes an astounding over-the-fence catch to rob Juan Gonzalez of a three-run homer. And this is the final curtain call at the Kingdom for the Mariners. From the stretch, Garcia's 1-0 pitch is swung on, hit well to the center field. Griffey going back, he's at the track, he leaps, and he makes the catch! Holy cow, he got it! Oh my! He got it! He took a home run away from Gonzalez! And side retired. One of the better catches by Griffey. Holy cow, he did it again. And after three and a half, the Mariners lead it four to two. June 28, 1907. Branch Rickey, catcher for the New York Yankees, watched 12 Washington players steal safely in a 16 to five win by the Senators. June 28, 1910, Joe Tinker of the Chicago Cubs becomes the first major leaguer to steal home twice in the same game. June 28, 1939, in a twin bill sweep at Scheib Park, the Yankees set the major league record for home runs in a game and in two consecutive games when the team hit eight homers in the opener and another five in the nightcap on their way to sweeping the A's 23-2 and 10-0. In the first game of the twin bill, the Bronx Bombers collect 53 total bases to establish American League record. 
June 28, 1976, Mark the Bird Fidrich amuses a Monday Night Baseball national TV audience talking to the baseball when he one-hits the Yankees 5-1 in under two hours. The unsung Tigers rookie, who made the team on the final cut of spring training, will finish the season 19-9. I've seen a lot of ball games played, and I've caught a few. I don't think I've ever seen a pitcher this keyed up in the ninth inning of the ball game or all through the ball game. You think this guy'd be running out of gas by an hour, starting to get down a little bit, but he is just starting to heat it up. What's getting me is he's giving me duck bumps, and I've watched over 8,000 ball games. The fans are cheering. Let's go, Mark. Here's Hendricks. Two outs. A ball to Hendricks. Gamble at first. The Tigers lead 5-1. And here comes Hendricks off the mound. He's saying, settle down, Paul. <laughs> Listen to the fans. Let's go, Mark. All right, let's settle down. Settle down. Give me that ball. Two balls inside ball three. And Hendricks, who has not walked the batter, you don't want to look at him now. We've said he's been keyed up all night, but he might he might be getting a little too high right now. He, well, he's in there with that fastball. He's only walked 18 batters going into tonight's ballgame, so he has excellent location. Nobody holding Gamble, of course. The three and one to Hendricks. Hey, Sidney! And now, the 3 2 to Hendricks. The fans ready to explode. Here's your pitch. Ground ball should be the ball game. It's over. <laughs> and the Tigers act like Hendricks has just won the seventh game of the World Series. He has. <laughs> He's won seven in a row. He is some kind of unbelievable young Mark Hendricks. So, Mark Hendricks. Thanking his teammates. Look at that. He's thanking his teammates. He's thanking the umpires, everybody, the ground crew. June 28, 2007. With the third of his five hits in the Astros' 8-5 victory over Colorado at Minute Maid Park, Craig Biggio collects his 3,000th hit to become the 27th major leaguer to reach the plateau and the ninth player to accomplish the feat for one team. The milestone is reached in the seventh inning with a single off Aaron Cook, but the Houston second baseman is thrown out trying to stretch the historic hit into a double. 2-0 pitch, swinging, there it is! Here comes Osmus, the star is tied. Fitz wants to make it a double, and he's gonna be out. He didn't get the trademark, but he did get 3,000 hits. History at Minute Maid Park in downtown Houston. We have the newest member of the 3,000 Hit Club. June 29, 1937. In a 10-2 loss to Brooklyn, Chicago's first baseman, Ripper Collins, does not make a putout during the nine-inning game. Although this is just the third occurrence of the rare feat, it is the second time for the Cubs infielder, who also didn't make a putout playing first for the Cardinals in a game played against the Braves two seasons ago. 
June 29th, 1984. Pete Rose plays in his 3,309th game, surpassing Carl Yastrzemski as the all-time leader. Rose goes 0 for 5, but Montreal beats Cincinnati 7 to 3. Ladies and gentlemen, I am the Bear of Texas. The MLB season 1984, when Pete Rose played in his 3,309th Major League game, which surpassed Carl Yastrzemski as the all-time leader. Rose didn't have the best game when a hitless 0 for 5, but the Montreal Expos would beat the Cincinnati Reds 7 to 3. 1984. Quite a well, what a season it was for Pete Rose. He was previously with the Phillies. He was given an unconditional release from the Phillies in the late October of 1983. Phillies management they wanted to keep Rose for the 1984 season. However, Pete Rose refused to accept what was said to be a very limited playing role. Months later, he would sign with Montreal. And on April 13th, 1984, which was the 21st anniversary of his first career hit in the majors, Rose would hit a double off of Phillies pitcher Jerry Koosman for what was career hit number 4,000. And that day, Pete Rose became the second player in history to join the 4,000 hit club, joining Ty Cobb. So that season was special. Although Rose would only play 95 games that year, he would have 72 hits, 23 RBIs, a .259 batting average. And then that August of 1984, he would be traded back to the Cincinnati Reds. June 29, 1990. Oakland's Dave Stewart and the Dodgers' Fernando Venezuela both throw no-hitters. Stewart blanks the Blue Jays 5-0, and a few hours later, Venezuela beats the Cardinals 6-0. June 29, 2004. At Bank One Ballpark, Diamondbacks 40-year-old fireballer Randy Johnson records his 4,000th career strikeout whiffing Padres third baseman Jeff Cirillo, a fellow USC Trojan, to become the fourth player in Major League history to reach the plateau. The big unit, 3,237 and one-third fewer innings than Nolan Ryan, 3,844 and two-thirds innings, Roger Clemens, 4,151 innings, and Steve Carlton, 4,991 and a third innings to accomplish the feat. Andy Johnson, five-time Cy Young Award winner, a pair of no-hitters, a perfect game, and now 4,000 strikeouts, a strike them out, throw them out, double play, and Randy Johnson has joined Nolan Ryan, Roger Clemens, June 29th, 2005. Craig Biggio breaks Don Baylor's record for being hit by a pitch 
when he is plunked for the 268th time in his career. At Coors Field, Rocky starter Byung-Yung Kim hits the Astros' second baseman on the left elbow in the fourth inning to establish a new mark, both literally and figuratively. Scared to throw the baseball as he did last night. And Biggio now owns the record all to himself. A grimace and maybe a grin for a moment. 268 times he's been hit in his career. That is a new major league record. He shared it for 24 hours with Don Baylor. And some Astro fans know of the record. Well, stand and applaud. And the ball shot all the way over into the Rockies dugout. He asked for it to, to be thrown to their dugout, and it was. But you know what? Think about the left side of his body. It's well, been black wear, and blue he, he, for two decades. Yeah, the bottom side. But he wears that pad up on the arm. He finally got wise. Had to wear the pad to kind of protect them. June 30th, 1908. Cy Young's third career no-hitter is an 8-0 Boston win over New York. At 41 years and three months, he is the oldest pitcher to turn the no-hit trick. Nolan Ryan will beat him in 1990 at the age of 43. June 30th, 1962. Sandy Koufax becomes the first Dodger Southpaw to throw a no-hitter since Knapp Rucker accomplished the feat in 1908, when he keeps the expansion Mets hitless in the team's 5-0 victory in LA. The 26-year-old left-hander, en route to fanning 13, strikes out the first three batters he faces. Richie Ashburn, Rod Cannell, and Felix Mantilla on nine pitches to start the game with an immaculate inning. Out in the ninth inning and Felix Mantia the batter and listen to this crowd. perhaps his biggest night, maybe even more important to him than his 18 strikeouts against the Giants. Till it's all on the line as Felix Manti is the batter, on deck Frank Thomas. They're all well aware of what's at stake at the moment. Two and one to Mantia. Kovac set. And the pitch. Fastball, a big bouncer down to Wills. He has it, goes to Burright, no hitter. Pitches a no-hitter for the Dodgers. The first Dodger no-hitter since Sal Magley turned it in in 1956. And the first Dodger left-hander to pitch a no-hitter since way back in 1908. And he is now walking towards home plate. 
and the crowd giving him a standing ovation. June 30th, 1970. A sellout crowd of 51,050 is on hand for the dedication of Cincinnati's Riverfront Stadium, but Hank Aaron spoils the show as he hits the park's first home run and the Braves win 8 to 2. June 30th, 1978. Giants first baseman Willie McCovey on an 0-2 pitch thrown by Jamie Easterly launches his 500th career home run over the left field fence, becoming the 12th player to accomplish the feat. Stretch's historic homer occurs in the second inning opener of a doubleheader, which the Giants sweep from the Braves at Atlantic Fulton County Stadium 10-9 and 10-5. June 30th, 1995. At the Metrodome, Indians DH Eddie Murray collects his 3,000th hit off Twins right-hander Mike Trombley to become the 20th player to accomplish the feat. Steady Eddie joins Pete Rose as the only second switch hitter to reach the milestone. Eddie Murray looking for hit number 3,000. To the right side. is the 20th man to get 3,000 hits in the Major League. July 1st, 1910. White Sox Park opens with a 2-0 loss to the Browns. The stadium, which becomes known as Comiskey Park, costs $750,000 to build. The stadium will be the oldest in baseball when it closed in 1990 and replaced by a new structure called Comiskey Park. July 1st, 1941. In a rain-shortened nightcap against the Red Sox, Joe DiMaggio ties Wee Willie Keeler's 1897 Major League record consecutive game hit streak of 44 with a little help of a difficult decision by the official scorer. Red Sox third baseman Jim Tabber makes a poor throw, but the Yankee Clipper is given a hit by Dan Daniel of the New York World. July 1st, 1968. A first inning wild pitch allows a run to break Bob Gibson's streak of 47 and two thirds scoreless innings pitching but the Cards beat the Dodgers 8-1. Gibson will pitch 23 more innings before giving up another run. July 1st, 2011. D. Gordon in the seventh inning of a 5-0 interleague victory over the Angels in Anaheim, steals second and third base, then completes the stolen base cycle by swiping home. The Dodgers shortstop becomes the 40th major leaguer to accomplish the trifecta in the same frame. And there goes Gwynn, the pitch inside. It's a rundown. Gordon is halfway to the plate. Here he comes to the plate. He scores. Down to second goes Gwynn. And the Dodgers running the Angels a little daffy. July 2nd, 1963. 
In one of baseball's most memorable pitching duels, Giants right-hander Juan Marichal and the Braves' southpaw Warren Spawn both hurl 15 scoreless innings before Willie Mays ends the marathon contest with a homer off Spawn in the bottom of the 16th inning, giving San Francisco a 1-0 win. July 2nd, 1975. Don Baylor goes deep in the first three plate appearances in the Orioles' 13-5 victory over the Tigers at Tiger Stadium. The trio of home runs today gives the Baltimore left fielder four consecutive round trippers, having hit one off Reggie Cleveland in his last at-bat in the team's 10-6 loss to the Red Sox at Fenway Park the day before. July 2nd, 1995. Dodger right-hander Hideo Nomo, who is leading the National League in strikeouts, becomes the first player from Japan to be selected for the Major League All-Star Game. As the starter for the senior circuit, the 26-year-old rookie tosses two scoreless innings in the National League's 3-2 victory over the American League rivals at the ballpark in Arlington. And quite a sight on the mound. Who would have figured Hideo Nomo, last year pitching in Japan had five no decisions then went six and oh in June and out of the strike zone now the one two pitch to Lofton here it is waved at and missed and boy I tell you you've got the fourth ball here and you've also got the twilight and you've got a strip of sunlight between the mound and the plate. 14 out of 16 so that's only the third time all year long they've caught a runner and down goes Martinez. And down goes Bell. Drepton lashes one to right field, and on the run is Tony Gwynn to make the catch. July 3, 1949. En route to a 16-0 shutout of the Dodgers at the Polo Grounds, starting pitcher Monte Kennedy hits a grand slam. Another 51 seasons will pass before another Giants hurler hits a four-run homer when Sean Estes accomplishes defeat in 2000. July 3rd, 1966. Pitcher Tony Cloninger hits two grand slams and drives in nine runs as the Braves rout the Giants at Candlestick Park, 17-3. Cloninger is the first National League player to hit two grand slams in a game, and his nine RBIs set a major league record for pitchers. July 3rd, 1983. The Rangers explode for 12 runs in the 15th inning of a 16-4 win over the A's, setting a new Major League record for runs in a single extra inning. July 4th, 1905. Rube Waddle beats Cy Young and the Americans 4-2 when the A's score two runs in the 20th inning. Both of the future Hall of Fame hurlers go the distance in the Huntington Avenue Baseball Grounds Marathon. July 4th, 1939. It's Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day at Yankee Stadium, and the Iron Horse's uniform number four will be the first ever to be retired. After MC Sid Mercer informs the sellout crowd, the man of the hour is too moved to speak, Garrick changes his mind when skipper Joe McCarthy encourages him and delivers the keynote address in baseball history, 
describing himself as the luckiest man on the face of the earth. First baseman Lou Gehrig hung up an amazing mark by playing in 2,130 consecutive games. Then a fatal disease attacked baseball's Iron Man. In Yankee Stadium, touched to tears by the tribute, Gehrig made his last public appearance. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it privilege to associate yourself with such a fine-looking man as a standing in uniform in this ballpark today? That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. July 4th, 1939, Yankee Stadium, Lou Gehrig's number four is retired by the Yankees. He'll be the first son retired by the team. And although he did not feel like speaking that day, the then manager Joe McCarthy had, had requested that he speak. What came next was the most iconic speech in baseball history. Although Gehrig said, I feel like the luckiest man on the face of the earth, despite the fact that I'm losing my life. After a 17-year career, which was dominated, which was absolutely dominant, Lou Gehrig walked away from baseball on that fade day. His 56th streak will never be broken, most likely, and his over 2,000 games played would stand until, until Carroll Jr. did it in 1995. I've seen Lou Gehrig's speech several times, not only in the film Pride of the Yankees, but I've also watched it on YouTube as well as watched it in Yankee Stadium itself, and I can tell you this, I've cried every time. To Yankee fans, Lou Gehrig always remembered not only as the first ever as one of the first ever captains of the Yankees, which he was from 1935 until 1939, he'll always remember for his gentleness, his love of the game, his love of the fans, and his love of his wife. He, he took time in his speech also to thank all of New York, along with his wife, his family, and his friends. Lou Gehrig will always remember by Yankee fans one of the greatest Yankees to ever play the game, if not the. To this day, we have never had a player like him, like Lou Gehrig. His gentleness and love for the game, his kindness will always be remembered. Yankee fans today are still fond of the man known as Lou Gehrig, and the movie Pride of the Yankees has covered, it, has covered it his entire career from start to finish. I've watched that movie several times myself, and I can tell you, when it gets to the iconic speech, I cry every time. This is Mark Brown from, from Course High to Cowhide. Have, an, have a very happy 4th of July. Stay safe. And as always, we will see you real soon. July 4th, 1964. Kansas City's Manny Jimenez, who didn't homer in 1963, connects for three in a 6-6 tie with the Orioles. The game is stopped by a special Baltimore curfew to permit the fireworks to take place. July 4th, 1983. At Yankee Stadium, Southport Dave Rigetti no-hits the Red Sox to become the first Bronx Bomber left-hander to throw a no-no since George Mulgrich accomplished the feat in 1917. 
The 24-year-old Southpaw's 4-0 gem is the first no-hitter for New York since Don Lawson tossed his perfect game in the 1956 World Series. Two outs in the top of the ninth inning, and Dave Rigetti on the threshold of making history here at Yankee Stadium. He sets the kick and the pitch. He's talking about Rigetti has pitched a no-hitter. Dave Rigetti has pitched a no-hitter. He strikes out Boggs for the final out of the ball game. And the Yankees pour on the field to congratulate Dave Rigetti. A no-hitter for Rigetti. Frank, that had not been done since 1956 when Don Larson pitched his perfect game in the World Series against the Brooklyn Dodgers, the then Brooklyn Dodgers. So the first Yankee to pitch a no-hitter since 1956, and this kid uh, with the temperature in the 90s richly deserved uh, this big win and the no-hitter. He's waving to the fans. They're all, on, they're all on their feet giving him a standing ovation. A great, a great game by Dave Rigetti. Look at him. You like to see him happy like that. July 4th, 1985. The longest extra inning game on 4th of July history. First, we'll have a clip from the game, and then we will have a full game recap from our historical guy, Enzo Pontrelli. Best hitter of the right. three left. It'll be an 0-2 pitch. And he is at the deep left. Heat goes back. It is gone. Holy cow. Oh, my goodness. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Rick Kim. Rick Kim. I don't believe it. Remember what I just said. If he hits a home run, that certifies this game as the wackiest, wildest, most improbable game in history. <laughs> On an 0-2 pitch, Rick Camp hit it over the left center field wall. I don't believe it. If you only knew on the Braves, we kid Rick Camp about his hitting more than anything, Ernie. Nobody can believe it. Camp makes it 11-11, his first major league homer. I mean, that is the most improbable act. Let's see it again, Ernie. We gotta look at this another 50 times. That goes heap, it's out of here. And it hit the football bleachers. I mean, if you told me that John Sterling's gonna run for president and win, that wouldn't be any more improbable. And I gotta tell you, that's improbable. Unbelievable. This is Enzo Pontrelli, contributor to Horsehide to Cowhide, America's Pastime. July 4th. 1985, Mets and Braves 19-inning marathon affair. Baseball and 4th of July are made for each other. What better way to celebrate America's birthday than with America's pastime? In 1985, though, the Mets and Braves might have taken a notion a little too far. The two teams got together for a July 4th night game at Fulton County Stadium. And by the time the dust settled, the calendar had flipped to July the 5th. In between was one of the wildest 
wackiest, most inexplicable baseball games in the history of the sport. So much so that we had to put together this handy timeline of shenanigans. Sit back, fire up the grill, and enjoy. Prior to first pitch, not a particularly auspicious start, first pitch is delayed by 90 minutes due to rain. The forecast going forward doesn't look great, but this is the 4th of July, and the show must go on. In those days, if the team had spent money on fireworks, you were playing come hell or high water, Ron Darling later recalled. Bottom of the third inning. Sure enough, high water comes not long after as play is suspended for 41 minutes. During the bottom of the third, delay number two also brings some controversy. After removing starter Doc Gooden because of the long wait, Mets manager Davey Johnson wants to make changes to his lineup, only for the umpire and crew to inform him that he can't in the middle of an inning. New York plays the remainder of the game under protest. Top of the fourth inning, some actual baseball. The Mets rallied for four runs to take a 5-3 lead, thanks in part to a Wally Bachman RBI single that rolls into center field and just stops. Top of the sixth, Keith Hernandez triples during that fourth inning rally, leaving him just a single and Homer shy of the cycle. It looks as though he's checked the former box in his next start. Only for umpires to rule that Dale Murphy had made a clean catch on his line drive to center. Narrator voice. Murphy did not, in fact, make a clean catch. Top of the eight. Hernandez homers, bringing him just a single away from the cycle. The Mets take a 7-4 lead until bottom of the eighth. The Braves mount a go-ahead rally, capped off by a bases-clearing double by Murphy. Atlanta takes an improbable 8-7 lead into the ninth for future Hall of Famer closer Bruce Sutter. Top of the ninth, only to watch as Sutter blows the save on consecutive singles from Howard Johnson, Danny Heap, and Lenny Dykstra. On to extra innings we go. Top of the twelfth. Things are uneventful until the 12th, when Hernandez finally gets that elusive cycle. He's erased on a double play, but still. Top of the 13th. Finally, Johnson hits a two-run homer to give New York the lead. The Mets are going to win this most improbable marathon of an uh-oh, who are we kidding, we're nowhere near done yet. Bottom of the 13th. Take it away, Terry Harper. Top of the 17th. Harper's two-run homer ties the game at 10. And so, things remain at Tom Gorman and Gene Garber swap zeros. At this point, July 4th has become July 5th. And everybody's getting a bit tired. Everybody, including home plate umpire Terry Tata, who's been crouching behind home plate for about 150 at-bats at this point, and has no time for Johnson and Dale Strawberry arguing balls and strikes. After all, as Tata told Johnson at the time, at 3 o'clock in the morning, anything's a strike. Strawberry heads back to the dugout, probably to go snack on some popcorn, which Atlanta's visiting clubhouse manager kept playing 
the Mets with all night. While Johnson takes to the recliner in the manager's office to watch the rest of the game. Don't worry though, his role in the story isn't over yet. Top of the 18th inning, Elaine Dykstra's sacrifice fly gives the Mets an 11 10 lead. This must be it. Bottom of the 18th. Finally, mercifully, it appears as though the game is coming to an end. Gorman has retired the first two Braves with these. And with no more bench options remaining, Atlanta's last best hope is pitcher Rick Camp, who came into the night a career .060 hitter with 83 strikeouts in 167 at-bats. As you might imagine, the Mets exhaled. Garrett Carter was so confident that he started waving his outfielders in. But John Sterling, then a broadcaster for Turner Sports, and still a few years away from becoming the voice of the Yankees, wasn't so sure. He didn't quite call it, but he did put it, the thought out into the universe. Ernie, Sterling said to his partner, Ernie Johnson, if Camp hits a home run to tie this game, this game will be certified as absolutely the nuttiest in the history of baseball. A couple of pitches later, wouldn't you know? Typically, major leaguers strive for stoicism. They're professionals with a job to do. And even when things go south, they need to keep up appearances. When a pitcher hits a game-time homer with two outs in the bottom of the 18th at 3 in the morning, though, that stoicism fouls out of the window. Nearly as soon as the ball left the bat, Johnson and third baseman Ray Knight crumpled in disbelief. Left fielder Heap, meanwhile, could only put his hands on his head. Top of the 19th, and yet somehow, someway, New York responded. They exacted revenge on camp with five runs in the 19th to give themselves a commanding 16-11 lead. Highlighted, highlighted by a three-run single from Heap. Surely, this had to do it, right? Bottom of the 19th. Before they could close out the game, though, one more decision had to be made. The Mets were now officially out of relievers, and they had to decide whether to use a position player or go with the next day's starter. And who better to answer that question than the manager ejected or not? One member of the team went into the clubhouse to find Johnson and ask him whether Heap should start warming up. And he was happy to answer, Hell no, Johnson said. If we're going to be here this long, we're going to win it. Get Ronnie Darling up. Darling got up, came into the game, and did his job. Time of day, 3.55 a.m. Time of game, 6 hours and 10 minutes and even though most of them were home and asleep by now, Braves fans had still been promised fireworks, and the team was determined to give them some. In all, the teams managed 25 runs, 46 hits, and 37 men left on base. But the most remarkable total might have been put up by Mets pitcher Roger McDowell, who after pitching two-thirds of an inning in relief for Gooden, threw back seven cheeseburgers over the remainder of the night. 
Happy 4th, everybody. I'm Hunter Pontrelli, contributor to Horsehide to Cowhide, America's Pastor. That's it for this week's episode. We hope you have enjoyed the eight-day ride 4th of July special that we came out with this week. We extend thanks to Mark Braverman, the lifelong baseball fan, Enzo Pontrelli, our historical baseball guy, and Alex the Bear Man from Texas for their contributions to this week's show. All content this week used underneath the Fair Usage Act, including Major League Baseball, Fox Sports, NationalPastime.com, and others. Tune in next week for another edition of Horsehide to Cowhide, America's Pastime, and happy 4th of July. Thank you.